You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, as Jess and I have been sharing back and forth, <clears throat> he was in Philippians last week, and the last time we were together, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We finished it up. Uh, we ended with the, the chapter started as I read. I, I, I'll just go through the closing that I did last week, and then we'll read chapter 10, um, or part of, actually, chapter 10 is fairly long, if I remember right. Yeah, 33 verses. We'll read what we need. Uh, so this chapter in chapter 9 started with Paul defending himself as an apostle. And then he walks through a litany of reasons why he should be able to expect the Corinthians to support him in his efforts to bring the gospel to them. It culminates with him refusing to assert that right and to delineate why he brings the gospel. He does it for the Lord. He does it for the reward the king, that, that, that King Jesus has waiting for him. He does it out of love for those to whom he has been sent. Indeed, this entire chapter is a, is a, dis, a demonstration of what a genuine Christian with full rights in Christ will do uh, in order to live a life of service to the Lord, how he will suppress his own rights, how he will take caution, he will cautiously live out his, his Christianity, especially when he's around those who are new in the faith, in order to be an encouragement and a, a blessing to them. Are we willing to restrict ourselves in order not to be offensive to our weaker brothers, Paul asked. Are we willing to discipline ourselves so that we extract the greatest benefit from the efforts we put forth? I'm not implying that service to the Lord is done in our own strength, it must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit by and through the Word of God. This is what Paul was pressing his listeners to do, his readers to do. And I, I stressed last week, that, or two, two or three weeks ago, that we should do no less. So now we're going to read chapter 10, at least the first, first portion of it. I don't know how far we'll get this morning, maybe through 2, 3, 7, 20 verses. But uh, let's read through chapter thir- or verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We want to, uh, to lay a foundation for even further service to the Lord. For, he says, Paul, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. <clears throat> now, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. It is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as, we, as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but as such is common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. That verse, we won't get to that by any chance today, but that verse has so often been lifted out of context. When you read it in this context, 
and recognize what God is saying to the Corinthians. He wants them to stand. He wants them to be an example, like the, but not the kind of example that the Israelites were to us because he goes through a litany of don't do this and don't do that and don't be like this and, and, and we'll study those, we'll look at those. So chapter 8 laid out the principle of deferring to our weaker brothers and sisters. Paul created word pictures and he used historical actions and happenings to encourage the Corinthians not to do things that would cause their weaker brothers and sisters to fall into sin. In chapter 9, Paul provided real-world example by demonstrating how he had modified his own lifestyle so he would not cause others to stumble. Even though he, would have, he could have commanded a salary and board and all the things necessary for a traveling preacher, traveling evangelist, if you will, from the Corinthians for bringing them the gospel. He chose not to. In chapter 10, which we will be going through now, Paul will give warnings from Israel's histories, from Israel's history about the dangers of overconfidence. He will warn the Corinthians not to misuse their freedom, but rather to seek the profit of many, as he says in the last verse of chapter, thir- of chapter 10, which we didn't read, but just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many that they may be saved. That's the goal Paul has in mind for the Corinthians. So as we look at the verses and go through it, it's with this in mind that he's again, he's still tackling the problem of the Corinthians' overconfidence and of their their false understanding of theology. So verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. The word for refers back to the verse 27 of chapter 9. But I, have, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly I have preached to others I myself should be disqualified. He says, then, for that, and, and having said that, I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. It's a common experience all the Israelites had in the Exodus. So it refers back to this verse. The disqualification that can come to those who do not maintain themselves in obedience to the Scripture was demonstrated in the history of the Israelites. Paul's final statements in that last chapter that he keeps his body under and makes it his slave lest he would be a castaway is now going to be cemented in the Corinthian mind by what happened to the Israelites who did not do that. The Israelites were physical descendants of Abraham, but, they, uh, but that didn't necessarily, conf- it did not confer on them spiritual descent. So in Romans 9, chapter, six through, or chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, Paul says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Israel, just because they were born of Abraham, that did not confer on them the the childhood being a children of God. Faith confers that. Israel was provided with supernatural guidance as God attended them in the cloud. Exodus chapter 13, 21 and 22. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from from before the people. 
And they were also given protection from the Egyptian army with a supernatural passing through the Red Sea. You're all familiar with that, Exodus 14, 21 through 31. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind, and all night, a strong east wind all night, and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptian took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power with which the Lord had used against which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, how many of you have seen the movie The Ten Commandments? That does a reasonably good job of showing what happened. Would you ever forget that in your lifetime? And you'd never take it for granted, right? We take things for granted every day, all day long. I grew up in a home that I was provided food and, and drink and sustenance and, and board and, and whatever I wanted pretty much, at least back in those days, you know, when, right after God created dirt, I'm that old, but, and I took it for granted, you know, I was going to conquer the world. When I got out on my own, I found out, oh, wait a minute, I got to earn my own living. Oh, that's what I was, that's what I had advantage with back there. I didn't have to do all this. We, take, we can take things for granted, and if we think we wouldn't have taken this for granted, we're mistaken if we didn't have the Holy Spirit. All of us can do just what the Israelites did, and that's what Paul is warning the Corinthians. They saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Can you imagine? And by the way, all those people that think it was the Reed Sea and it was only six inches deep, those Egyptians probably could swim in six inches, don't you think? Or at least walk out. The horses could have walked out, yeah. Anyway... All of that foolishness aside, the Israelites saw that. And then how many of them went into the promised land because they continued in their belief of God? None, except for Caleb and Joshua over the age of, over the age of 20. There may have been some in the body at Corinth who might have been unaware of this story, but for the most part, because they had been receiving teaching from Paul and the other apostles and Apollos over several years, it is certain that they were fully aware most of them would have been fully aware of the story of the Exodus. And we all say it. <laughs> if I saw that happen, I'd never lose my faith in God. I'd never, I'd never stop believing. I'd never take him for granted. You know, it just ain't so. We all have to be about the business of rebuilding our relationships with the Lord every day. Rebuilding may be a bad, a, a bad choice of word, but applying the forgiveness that God gives to us in the sin that we commit and turning back to him every day because none of us is perfect. 
So the Corinthians had been receiving teachings from Paul and the other apostles over several years. It's certain that they were fully aware of the Exodus. The Exodus was God calling out his chosen people. While they were delivered from Egypt as a nation, salvation is not a national thing. He doesn't save groups of people. Individuals come to him. And by his sovereign grace, after he has drawn them, they trust him and he confers upon them eternal life. It's all of God, but it's not national. And to, to ref, I, take, I take great umbrage at referring to places like a Christian nation. What's that? You know, it would be nice if like 98%, I mean, it's my fantasy, of the, of the, of the population of this country were believers, but it is not so. We are a nation that has Christians in it. And there are many nations that have Christians in it. Uh, it's not a national thing, yes. It's not just nation. Right down to the family. Yeah. Are there Christian families? There's a few. Hopefully there's lots. But there are families with Christians in them. And the interesting thing about that is, is sometimes when we take that attitude... There will be people who will they'll breathe a sigh of relief. Well, I don't have to do anything. I'm in a Christian whatever. No, no. All of us are individually responsible by the sovereign hand of God to respond to him once he brings salvation to us. At any rate, we all know that. Most certainly, there were Israelites who were the spiritual children of God in Egypt. Most of them for sure became his children in the wanderings. Many of them, more of them, I should say. More of them for sure became his children in the wanderings. In verse 24, in the last chapter... Uh, which is, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Verse 24, Paul alludes to a race. For the Israelites, that race would have been witnessing to the greatness of God, witnessing the grace of God to the world, the greatness of God to the world. That was their responsibility as, an, as, a, as a, his sovereign con conference upon them, to witness to God to witness to the world, excuse me, of the greatness of God. Israel fell from that calling and was disqualified by falling into idolatry, immorality, rebellious, rebelliousness, and wanton sin. In chapter 10, Paul will be warning the Corinthians, do not let that happen to you. Of course it can't happen to us because we're perfect. No, no, we never. It would be, there is a time coming when the body will be redeemed. But for now, we live in the flesh. Any comments about verse... Verse 1, comments, concerns, questions. So verse 2, interesting verse. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. There are various and even fanciful interpretations of this verse. Many believe that the sea water or that the water vapor in the cloud actually baptized the Israelites. There are some who actually think that's what happened. And uh, that's fine. The book of Romans, as well as in Galatians, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explains that baptism itself is simply an outward sign of a spiritual union with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. It is identification with Christ and submission to his authority and sovereignty in our lives. There's the rest of Exodus that you were wondering what I was reading. So Galatians 3.27, Paul says this, For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. So that the, the unbelievable purity of the Lord Jesus Christ rests upon you so that your sin is covered by his death, burial, and resurrection. 
and you have nothing to worry about as a child of God considering the judgment of God. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. We're going to read the whole thing. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know? And here's the key to, the, to this as, as applied to this section of 1 Corinthians. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, here's the result of that. We have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's what baptism does. It unites us with Christ. Uh, it, it demonstrates our, uni our unification with Christ. <laughs> Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. <clears throat> For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So the Israelites, in this sense of identification and submission, were united with Moses. In this, not in sanctification, not in salvation, but in obedience to God through Moses. In this, we are reminded again that Moses was a type of Christ. But this Israelite identification with the leadership that Moses was sovereignly given by God is nothing like the relationship a believer has with the Lord Jesus Christ when he is baptized into him. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are united with the Son of God, and we truly become children of the Most High. And that's not a national thing. It's an individual thing. Let's go back. Okay. So the Israelites were, were identified with Moses as we identify with Christ in, the, in baptism. Baptism does not save you. It is a, a symbol, a sign of our already unification with Christ when we trusted him. Colossians 2, 10-14. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him... You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He made us alive. He made the Corinthians alive. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the Corinthians and we, who were once dead, are made alive. Our sins are forgiven. Our eternal glory with Christ in heaven is sealed and delivered. Nothing like this happened to the Israelites. They were unified with Moses in obedience. And it would have taken, I've got to give it to them, it would have taken some sort of staunch obedience to this guy leading you to be looking up at a, I don't know, a hundred wall of water on each side of you? hundred foot wall of water on each side of you? How's he doing that? I'm not going to look. And you just steadfastly walk through. I, I don't want to belittle. I don't want to be, belittle what they did. It was something. It would have been something. Any questions about the, the baptism into Moses? Verse 3, and, they, and all ate the same spiritual food. 
When God fed the Israelites with manna supernaturally, it was a physical feeding as well as a spiritual feeding. It had to be remarkable to every Israelite, believing and unbelieving, both, to get up in the morning and see that provision spread across the ground. This was welfare at its greatest, <laughs> but it was from on high, and it was perfect. It was necessary at the time. So Exodus 16, 14 and 15, when the layer of dew evaporated, the dew had evaporated off the ground, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to, to one another, manna, what is it? Well, they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. So, verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So they also, also received, the Israelites also received a supernatural provision of water physically. But Paul is more concerned about the fact that this was an Old Testament appearing and working of the Son of God. Exodus 17, 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and, I, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And so in this provision, Israel had in sum the two sacraments that Christians have. Baptism and communion. There was a legend that the rabbis promulgated that a rock actually followed the Israelites around through the, through the wilderness, giving them water. Some believe that a stream followed them. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interprets this rock as being an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is incredibly significant in that, in that it confirms that the, the second person of the Trinity did indeed appear in the Old Testament, but the fact that Paul used the word rock is also significant. The Old Testament uses the term rock. Did, I, didn't, I don't know why this has escaped me in 45 years, but I never really thought about it. The Old Testament uses the word rock to describe Yahweh. In Deuteronomy 32, 15, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat and thick and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. Psalm 18, 2. And I remember reading this. I just didn't make the connection. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 61, 2. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. When Paul appropriated that term here for the Lord Jesus Christ, he was making a clear reference to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, Yahweh was the rock. Well, who appeared to the Israelites and gave them water in the Old Testament at Horeb? It was the Lord Jesus Christ, the rock of salvation. What a, what a wonderful picture that is when you think about it. Clear connection through all of history that God makes so that his people will not make the mistake of wondering who the rock is. And the Corinthians knew who the rock was. They knew who it was. Any questions about verses 4 and 5? Uh, 3 and 4, excuse me. Verse 5. Now here's an understatement. The Holy Spirit can understate things. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. I don't know how many were there at the time, walked through the Red Sea. It was millions. But of the, of the, of the, above, of the adult-aged Israelites, only Joshua and Caleb made it into the Promised Land. I'd say that was most of them. So, 
God did not allow anyone who participated in the Exodus over 20 into the promised land. This too is supernatural. Even the choice of Greek words indicates that. The Greek word for laid low is actually a word that pictures corpses strewn about a landscape. And when Paul uses the phrase most of them, it is a great understatement because millions did not get in. Laid low. The word laid low. To strew over the ground, to prostrate, to slay. It also means to scatter on the ground. It's a word that like a lot of ancient language words would, and, and our words do this as well. When, you think, when I say the word picnic, what comes to your mind? Pardon? Lunch? What? Ants? <laughs> I, how come uncles never come to picnics? Okay. What else comes to your mind? Picnic. Pardon me? Happy people? Park? You know, a... a I don't know, maybe I'm old-fashioned, but what comes to mind is, to me is, and I, we never had a picnic like this, so why does this come to mind? But, you know, a wicker basket with a cloth laid over it, and inside, pie, and, and of course, pie first, and then cake, and then brownies, and then, you know, the sandwiches that you hope the ants eat so you can eat the pie. But, uh, so it, it confers a word picture, and that's what words do to us. Smells do that. Uh, I can smell something and remember a whole series of things that happened 30 years ago. I'm sure you've had that happen too. And so the, this is a rich word, and the, 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 especially the Jews in the, in the congregation, but they wouldn't have missed it. This was a destructive thing that happened. God strewed the, court, the countryside. If the bodies were left on the surface, if you went through the area that the wilderness wanderings, the Israelites went on, you would have seen corpses in various stages of de decay everywhere because they just never made it because of their unbelief. The Israelites of the Exodus were disobedient, self-centered, and generally wicked. Note also that many who were probably innocent, at least of the self-will of those who would never enter the promised land, suffered with the guilty. Our actions have consequences on those who may have had no part in a wickedness we committed. Because of their, their, their disobedience, uh, they were disqualified, and thus they did not enter the promised land. This was the same idea Paul is applying to the Corinthians, and that we should think about to ourselves as well. Their self-will and their arrogance could cause them to be disqualified from reward. Not lose their salvation, that can't happen. But they could lose the reward that, the, that they could win had they been obedient. The Israelites were blessed, they were fed, they were spiritually guided, they were taken care of by a sovereign God. So were the Corinthians, and, the, and, similarity and the similarity and comparison is striking. Some of the Corinthians were taking liberties with the feasts and the temple. Others were doing things that were mentioned in the earlier chapters, suing their brothers, ignoring immorality, remember in chapter 5, causing division in the church, over, causing division, but causing uh, often over the silliest of things. Um, well, I don't, I don't want to get off into the weeds. Causing division. They may have thought they were protected from any kind of disqualification because of the Lord's Supper and baptism. It's amazing what people will attribute to the sacraments of the church. Um, our obedience in baptism and the Lord's Supper does not purchase a talisman which protects us from the consequences of bad behavior. A description of the Israelites' disobedience and by extension the disobedience of the Corinthians follows. They are sanctified actions that we partake of, the, the sacrament of, of communion and baptism, that confer upon us an understanding of what our obedience to Christ has given us what the, the sovereign grace of God has given to us. 
They don't get us. Uh, what's the word that they, I'm trying to think of the word the Catholics use? It's uh, an, uh, uh, where you get a pass, where the Pope prays for you and you get a pass on something. What's that called? An, adult, an indulgence, yeah. You don't get an indulgence. God wants us to be obedient. He wants us to love him all the time. And when our obedience fails, he wants us to come to us and seek forgiveness and maintain that relationship we have with him. But uh, the Corinthians, as demonstrated in the earlier chapters, were not doing that. They were suing one another, again. They were ignoring immorality, and they were dividing the church. So, any questions about that verse, about verse 5? Verse 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as also they craved, as they also craved. Now, that's not like, God, Paul is not saying God made the Israelites do this a couple thousand years ago so that you'd have an example. What Paul is saying is we can look at these things. They are examples to us. The Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm bringing to you Scripture so that you will have it to look at as an example. This is what happened in the Old Testament. So the word examples is um, an interesting word. It's the word tupas, where we get the word type. How many of you, have, there are people in here who have probably never used a typewriter. Has anybody here, in here not used a typewriter? Uh, cool, that's actually interesting. You know, I saw a thing, on the, I saw a thing the other day where, where I it said something like, I actually, when the phone rang, I actually had to walk across the room and answer a phone hanging on the wall, and I didn't know who was calling me, and I survived. <laughs> anyway, so the, these things happened as a type, a figure, a model. It's the mark of a blow, a stamp struck by a die, a figure, a copy, an image, uh, a precedent for others to follow. Something that you can look at and say, okay, I'm going to do that, or okay, I'm not going to do that. And there's plenty of things that have happened in our own lives, throughout our lives, that we can look back and say, I ain't never doing that again. You know, that, that really was stupid. Or, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, that's, that's that was a good action. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat that. Often, New Testament authors will point out that things written in the Old Testament have a modern application and that they are types and correspond to an anti-type in the New Testament. We must be very careful in using this concept. I really looked into this because, I mean, this thing gets so misused by televangelists and others. We must be very careful in using this concept of a type. It may be best to stick with those very items in the New Testament that are specifically called types or that clearly reference a type in the Old Testament such as the descriptive title of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. Melchizedek was a type of Christ. The bronze serpent that was lifted up in the desert was a type of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us. The sacrificial lamb was a type of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. Over the century, typology has been used and abused, and there was a method that was used that was that is there's a method that was used and still is used that has so twisted scripture that you could hardly believe anything some of its purveyors taught. In some cases, this type of misuse of typology still occurs today. One commentator put it this way: the older view of typology fell into disfavor because it was solely concerned with finding prefigurations of Christ all over the New Testament. The idea was that the central feature of a type was that it prefigured Christ. But this was handled not as something observed afterward in the light of Christ, but, as, but rather as the very reason for existence for whatever was being regarded as a type. So, a type in this view was any event, 
institution or person in the Old Testament that had been arranged by God for the primary purpose of foreshadowing Christ. This had two unfortunate side effects. First, it usually meant that the interpreter of the Old Testament failed to find much reality and meaning in the events and the persons of the Old Testament in themselves. There was no need to spend time understanding and interpreting the text in their own Israelite historical context and background or to ask what they meant to those people at that time. You could just jump straight to Christ because that was where you would find the supposed real meaning. This ends up with a very platonic view of the Old Testament. That is, it really is only a collection of shadows of something else. Such a way of reading the Bible devalues the historical reality and validity of the Old Testament, Israel, and all that God did in and through and for them. Second, second, this type of typology had a tendency to indulge in fanciful attempts to, indulge, to interpret every detail of an Old Testament type as in some way a foreshadowing or some other, of some other obscure detail about Jesus. Once you had severed the event, institution, or person from its actual historical roots in Israel, then the details would no longer be seen as simply part of the story, as the Old Testament narrator told it. Since the real meaning was actually to be found in Jesus and the New Testament, all the details must have some hidden significance that could be applied to Christ. It was up to the imagination of the writer or preacher to bring such meanings out like a magician bringing rabbits out of a hat to the astonished gasps of admiring readers or listeners. All the colored threads of the tabernacle could signify something about Jesus. The five stones that David picked up represent the five wounds of Christ, or the five loaves he used to feed the crowd, or the five ministries that Christ has given to the church. He took them out of a stream, which was the Holy Spirit, and so on. This way of handling the Hebrew text is, now, is quite rightly now regarded as invalid and subjective. I like to stick with what the scripture specifically calls types and leave the imagination to the imaginers and try to confute them and correct them. I think God gave us the information we need to interpret the types. We don't need to find fanciful interpretations as so many do today. Actually, I believe that's bordering on, if not heresy. With that as a guideline, let us look at some of the scriptures that encourage us to think carefully about the Old Testament as prefiguring some of the things that have happened in the New Testament. And these are trustworthy, because not because I said it, but because the Holy Spirit said it. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through, through perseverance and encouragements of the scriptures, we might have hope. So Abraham, Romans 4, 23 and 24. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake only, also, excuse me, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus over the, our Lord from the dead. Abraham's belief, our belief in Christ is, is, is credited to our salvation, just as Abraham's was. That's a type, Old Testament. God said so. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, which we're looking at, we, we will be looking at. Uh, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Here, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clearly identifies the punishment of the Israelites' bad behavior and their subsequent disqualification to enter into the promised land as something that the Corinthians should not imitate. It was written for your example. It was written for you to avoid. Don't do this. You know, so you see a picture of the Israelites and a golden calf and a big circle with a slash through it. Do not. Don't do this.
The Israelites committed four major sins that Paul will talk about, for which they were disqualified from entering the promised land. In verse 7, they committed idolatry. And we'll look at that next. In verse 8, sexual immorality. In verse 9, tempting, testing God. And in verse 10, complaining and murmuring. All four of these sins could and maybe were plaguing Corinth. All of us should take heed to the fact that if we start down a road with the best of intentions, but at the end of that road is sin, is a sin, the odds are we will make it. We'll make it down that road. And so if the Corinthians went into an idol temple to sit down at a pagan feast because they knew there was only one God, the events that could happen at that feast might cause other temptations which could bring their downfall. We have all studied about what goes on in these pagan uh, celebrations. And it just didn't involve food. It involved sexual immorality as well. So a strong Christian, I can go into that place, I just won't look. Right. See the big circle with the line through it and a bunch of corpses behind it, Israelites strewn in the desert. That should superimpose, I ain't going there. No. And so Paul is doing his, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he's bringing to the Corinthians an admonition not to be overconfident. Has anyone in here ever been overconfident? Yeah, a lot of dangerous things come out of that. Don't tell my wife this, but I, was, I did over 120 miles an hour once. It was after we were married, too. There was a cause and effect, yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't get caught that time, but I got caught. As my mother said one time when she spanked me, she said, I said, but I didn't do that. She said, that's for the times I missed, you know. So actually, that really did happen to me. And, and I, didn't, I didn't question it because I knew it had much truth to it, if she only knew. Anyway, there are consequences to bad actions. Always consequences. What was the consequence to that? It developed in me a tendency to do things beyond what they should be doing. And finally, the ISP corrected it. And it was very expensive. And so now, when I look at my speedometer, the first thing I see is a big circle with a slash through it and corpses strewn behind it. Don't do this. So Paul is going to clearly identify some things. And again, let's be careful of this typology thing. When you see someone drawing strange types from Old, Testaments, Old Testament uh, sections, that's all they are is strange types. If there's not a clear, persuasive explanation in the New Testament where one of the apostles or the Lord Jesus Christ himself identifies that type, I would stay away from it. I would get counsel, but I'd stay away from it. Let's stick with the clear ones that we have in Scripture. Don't you think that's all we need? Is, is Scripture sufficient? You bet it is. We don't need other stuff like that. Circle, slash, corpses. We're going to finish up on verse 7. So here's, first, here's Paul's first clear indication of what the Corinthians are doing. The first, the, he wouldn't say this if there wasn't something going on. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. It is written, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. This is a reference to Exodus 32.6, which is the account of the golden calf. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses... 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to him, said to them, No, I will not do this because of the hand of God has brought you out of Egypt, and I will never disgrace the name of my Lord. No. This is a, a modern politician. Okay, okay. He said, Okay, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons. Tear off. How about just remove them? But anyway. And your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, and they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Really? Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, now here's the politician coming out. Here's, here's him using the evil for the Lord. Okay? Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose up early and offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings and the people sat down to ink, drink and they rose up to play. They began to reassociate themselves with the things that went on in Egypt and their behavior became immoral. They became idolaters. Well, Aaron said to Moses, you know, I threw all this gold into a fire and how came a golden calf? I couldn't help that. And so then they worshipped it. What am I going to do about that? Apparently, some of the Corinthians had reverted to their old pagan ways. This is a direct reference to excessive feasting and sexual immorality. That's what sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play meant in that time. If you said that phrase, the Greeks would know what you meant. They knew you were making a reference to pagan immorality. Later in chapter 10, Paul warns the Corinthians not to try to drink both the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot honor God. You cannot you cannot honor God with the immoral pagan practices. He's telling the Corinthians that. Our worship must be in conformity with what the Scripture says. When Christians choose to worship anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, what's that called? A security. Isn't it security? Don't we need money? Don't we need self-protection? Don't we need... Okay, yeah, we need those things. But when we begin to look to that more than we look to the, the, the Son of God, to the Father the Holy Spirit. We're worshiping it. It's more important to us. It's idolatry. Whether it's the Virgin Mary, saints, money or fame, all of it is idolatry. Anything that commands our primary, adore, uh, our primary loyalty and devotion is an idol. Now that's easy to say. Sometimes it's hard to sort out. But as God is, is uh, able to do that for us, let us commit ourselves that our security is first in the Lord. Now, we can provide for our needs in a biblical manner by working, by living uh, proper lives, by taking advantage of the security aspects we have today. But if you leave your trust only in that, only in that, that's idolatry. The Lord himself will protect you. Did he not protect the Israelites? And they saw, I still... As I read this in the last couple of weeks as I was studying this, I read it several times because they actually saw the waters close over the Egyptians. They saw God protect them sovereignly in a manner that not a one of them, they could look to each other and say, I couldn't do that. I don't know how he does that. That's, they would have, there would have been some, some basic conversation going on just like we might have had because they were folk. They were folks. But they, they, they turned their backs they disqualified themselves from entering into the promised land because of immorality, idolatry, tempting God, and grumbling and murmuring. And we're going to look at those when we come to them as we come to them in the next weeks. 
Any questions about verse 8, or excuse me, verse 7? So, um, I should have put that, I, I just thought of that. It would have been really cool to have the, the circle with the line through it and a bunch of dead bodies behind it, you know? So, that's a good one for us. It's a good one for us. The Holy Spirit doesn't want us to be disqualified from entering in to our reward. You can't lose your salvation if you're a believing child of the Son of God by faith, in, by faith given to you by the Father. But you can be disqualified from your reward. Let that not be us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.